Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our Senior Analyst, Pulitzer Prize Finalist, John Brennan. And here's something you don't hear every day. I was really looking forward to driving to New Jersey and placing a legal bet on my brother this year. Uh, You see, Oscars betting is back in New Jersey and is coming to Indiana as well. And my brother is a film editor who edited Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And every movie industry expert said Fred Raskin was a shoo-in for a nomination for Best Film Editing, and then the Academy snubbed him. So I am boycotting. I will not be watching the Oscars this year, and I will not be betting on the Oscars this year, not even with our pretend bankroll. John, am I taking this too personally? Does a true gambler not let family come before good value? Uh, first, I got to say, Eric, that is a very cool job your brother has, uh, nomination or nomination. So uh, <laughs> that, that should be its own reward. But um, right. I, I kind of know this feeling personally um, after my supporting star turn in the epic 2010 documentary, The Soprano State, New Jersey's <laughs> Culture of Corruption, Part One. Yeah. Uh, producer told me before I saw the movie at the first public screening in Manhattan the, at the Ziegfeld Theater, actually. He said, you closed the film. And that apparently means that having one of your multiple appearances in the movie like, come up at the end, that's like a good sign. That was a really mm-hmm. good scene. So mm-hmm. um, now the same producer had previously produced three Oscar nominated documentaries. So all right, wait, uh, truth be told, this is the first time it ever occurred to me that I or anyone in the documentary or or the <laughs> documentary itself was ever snubbed. But um, <laughs> I love the word snub and I will now adopt it as one of my own. Um, now to your other question, does a true gambler not let family come before good value? Um I see that Parasite is the favorite in your brother's category at minus 134. Not much value there. Um, how about the Irishman at plus 350? I mean, I could have easily been in that one as an extra, and then who knows what might have happened. But uh, uh, And you, you, you could like just hate watch that segment with intensity. I'd consider that. Uh, yeah, I guess that could be an option. But, uh, you know, I, I – 
Now, I, I, far be it for me to predict how the Academy is going to vote on anything, but I will say I saw The Irishman, and the common complaint about it is uh, that it was anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes too long. So I, <laughs> I, I would say in that regard, maybe it's not such a, a good bet for best uh, editing. But um, what you said about uh, my brother's job is absolutely the same thing that he said, that once the initial disappointment had worn off, he yeah. said, hey, I got to cut the movie, and it's a great movie, and uh, that's its own reward just like you said um and and i mo- mostly brought this up just to do the humble brag by proxy to make myself no. seem important because my brother Absolutely. had a cool job yeah um so i have to admit while my selfish goal was to be able to say my brother got nominated for an academy award or even my brother won an academy award there is something mildly cool about being able to say my brother got snubbed by the academy uh so uh, and and you can say it as well you were in a documentary film that got <laughs> snubbed by the academy yes. uh but on this one um they definitely snubbed him terrible job by the academy no integrity in that game uh people might be paying them fees uh, but they aren't integrity fees if you follow me well he's pr- probably a young man so he's got more chances to go Hopefully, uh, hopefully he does. Uh, All right. Well, thank you to everyone out there for joining us for episode number 75 of Gamble On, the gambling podcast that you know will never snub you. If you missed any of our previous 74 episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud and on iTunes and the Apple podcast app. Please subscribe, rate and review. Yeah, and Eric, coming up a little later on the show, we're going to be joined by Don Van Natta Jr. Uh, He's the host and executive producer of ESPN's Backstory. Uh, That's the latest episode, uh, which is titled uh, Banned for Life. Uh, That focuses on the betting scandals surrounding Shoeless Joe Jackson and Pete Rose. Um, Good stuff, as we uh, will talk about. Um, We'll also talk to Don about his views on Rose Jackson and sports betting in general uh, and go behind the scenes with him on the docuseries. Um, First, it's been yet another busy week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. And I love when that line is true. And this week is true. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. The biggest sports betting day of the year is fast approaching. As the Super Bowl matchup is set, it's the Kansas City Chiefs against the San Francisco 49ers 10 days from now in Miami. And already, Super Bowl betting stories are developing. The game started as a pick'em, but within minutes, the Chiefs bets came in. And depending on the sports book, they've been a one, one and a half or two point favorite all week. But if the spread betting has been slightly one sided, that's nothing compared to the betting on the point total. It opened at 51 and a half and has gone up to 54 or even 54 and a half. And DraftKings has reported that at its sports books, 96% of the handle is on the over. Uh, granted, the, the over is almost always more popular than the under, but it's usually not a 96 to 4 split. Uh, so it seems that the bookmakers did not accurately predict where the public would be on this game, maybe just underestimating the public's belief in Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs offense. John, Any surprises in your mind with regard to the opening numbers or the way the public has been betting them? And do you see any chance of late 49ers money coming in and making this the first pick'em Super Bowl in history? Yeah, I think the over sentiment is all Mahomes. I mean, with a touch of 49ers grounded pound throw it in from last week, um, Mm. you know, we'll focus more next week on the big game. Uh, I'm I'm not getting a cease and desist letter from the NFL. (laughs) Smart. Wait, can I I say NFL? I said it (laughs) twice. Um, But I'll just mention here that the 49ers are the number one defense in the league this year. And I wonder how often they go over historically in a Super Bowl when uh, you have a a top 10 or, you know, defense or so, especially a top one. So Mm -hmm. that's going to be interesting to watch. Um, Point spread, too. 
uh, is intriguing. Um, you know, one is closely useless as a slim chance of a push. You know, otherwise you pick your winner. Um, yeah, I'll take some favorable odds and predict to pick them. Why not? Okay. Yeah. I mean, it could happen. I guess certainly if we find out uh, uh, next week that there's some Chiefs player we thought was playing who came up injured for some reason, uh, if it's a noteworthy player, that could easily shift it by a, a point or so. Or maybe this these sharp betters are just waiting until the last minute. It would be really fun if uh, if this ended up uh, the first Pick'em Super Bowl ever or Pick'em big game ever. The, uh, the subplot that uh, intrigues me with regard to the betting um, – it's not that meaningful to compare year-to-year betting handle nationally because there are so many more places to bet in 2020 than there were in 2019, and there were far more in 2019 than in 2018, etc. So, of course, that number is going to go way up. But in Las Vegas, year-to-year handle comparisons are meaningful. That's a reasonably controlled experiment. And the handle went down significantly in 2019 versus 2018 from $158.6 million to $145.9 million. Um, I'm not totally sure what that was about. Was it Patriots fatigue? Was it the Rams not having a large fan base? Was it something about the matchup? So I'm just curious this year with two new teams that haven't been there in a while, no Patriots, a close game on paper, what will the handle look like? You know, this feels like a fun game to bet. Uh, You can take the over, you can take it for the whole game, for a quarter, for a half. There are any number of player props. Uh, I would have to guess the Las Vegas handle will be higher than last year, but... I can't really say for sure. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be higher. Yeah, Patriots, everyone is sick of the Patriots. I, even Patriots fans, well, they're not <laughs> sick of the Patriots. They should be sick of the Patriots, but they're not. And the Rams just had, there's nothing about them interesting at all. You know, the Chiefs have a 50-year drought. That's interesting. And yeah. 49ers had the glamour back in the 80s, early 90s. You know, so uh, there's something kind of cool about this game uh, that just was lacking last year. And look how bad the game was. So a lot of people right. were right to stay away from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I do feel confident in predicting a better game this year than last year. Yes. With, and I definitely will take the over on what did that one end up? 16 points. Uh, I'll take the over on that for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. As you said, we will talk much more about that game on next week's podcast. For now, let's move on to some more news. My podcast partner, John, uh, isn't just standing on the New York is in no hurry to legalize mobile sports betting corner. He owns that corner. <laughs> He's been the New York mobile betting pessimist from the start. And his stance has been justified once again with the news this Tuesday that Governor Andrew Cuomo has outlined the 2021 state budget and mobile sports betting is not a part of it. And at no point during his hour long address was online betting mentioned. He hinted around it, though, when he said, quote, this is not the time to come up with creative, although irresponsible revenue sources to solve a problem which doesn't really exist. End quote. Uh, the state deficit, by the way, is $6 billion. Sounds like a problem that does exist to me. Uh, there is one new amendment to state law, which is that mobile wagering, currently available in the sports lounges in the four New York casinos that can offer it, could be expanded to anywhere within the casino. Game changer. Uh, <laughs> John, any updated guess as to how far away New Yorkers are from being able to stop commuting into New Jersey to place their bets? Well, I think the problem Cuomo is referring to is all that New York money coming to New Jersey. Uh, I would guesstimate, say, $600 million spent by his folks in my state in Jersey on bets uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe a $35 million operated profit and, say, $4 million in New Jersey tax revenue. Uh, so that really isn't a huge deal, I'll admit, but um, hey, we'll take it. It's free money. Right. Um, and not mentions the extra taxes from New Yorkers who decide to spend a weekend in Atlantic City, by the way. Um, now, when does that commute they have to make uh, to New Jersey end? Uh, this is a tough one, Eric. Brace yourself. When does okay. Cuomo's reign end? Okay, so <laughs> right. 
New York does not have term limits for governors, which is amazing. And Cuomo already announced that he plans to run for a fourth term in 2022. He'll be a heavy favorite. Uh, Cuomo just turned 62 last month, and he looks pretty healthy to me. Mm -hmm. Um, He would turn 70 late in 2027. Maybe he'll be bored by then. Um, Now, recall that his father, Mario, served three terms in office. Um, And guess what? Andrew has twin daughters who are currently age 25 and another is age 23. And guess what? They are Kennedys. Yes, those Kennedys. So that uh, bodes well for them down the road. Uh, so New York's best bet for mobile betting could be a brief interregnum. You can Google that, kids. Um, between Andrew's last hurrah and a Kennedy Cuomo woman taking over, uh, <laughs> mobile sports betting backers can't pass it on that span. And now, wait, I just remembered Andrew Cuomo has a younger brother, Chris, a CNN news anchor who's only right. 49 years old, by the way. Um, he seems like a plausible candidate down the road. And when Andrew's 70, Chris will only be 57. That seems like a good time of uh, his career to run for governor. And he serves three terms. Those twins will be in their mid-40s by then and ready for office. So <laughs> if a twin there serves until age 70, that gets us to around 2065. So if the family philosophy remains unchanged, um, yeah, it could be a while. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you have me rooting hard for some non-Cuomo or Kennedy Cuomo to uh, to take office at some point. Um, well, maybe there's a rebellious kid. You know, the dad wants this, so I, I'm going to go against him. It's there possible. you go. Okay. <laughs> um, just as a citizen, it, it is frustrating to see, uh, not just in New York, but in several states, the, the power that a governor wields, whether to veto a bill that both houses have put a lot of time and thought into and carefully guided to passage, as happened in Michigan before it was uh, before the the next uh, iteration got through, uh, and more recently in Maine, uh, or the case like this, to the governor to be able to basically announce, "Don't waste your time trying to pass a bill. I won't sign off on it." Um, and it's all just so plain to see the people of New York who want to bet are betting. If they're close enough to New Jersey, they're going there to bet. If they're not, they're betting with bookies or offshore sports books. All of it is tax revenue that New York is missing out on. Even if it's only a few million dollars, that's a few million dollars you'd rather have than not have, I would think. Um, I know there are bigger issues in our country than getting sports betting bills passed, but this is frustrating because it's just so obvious. They take it out of the shadows, tax it, regulate it. But, uh, yeah, I wasn't thinking uh, your time frame. I was just looking at the fact that uh, he's he's definitely in office until that November 2022 election. Uh, and even that feels like uh, it's it's a long way away. So I, I hope we're wrong, but it feels like uh, Joe Adabo is kind of wasting his energy for the for for the foreseeable future. I mean, at this point, it does look like there's a Cuomo gap in about almost 50 years or so where I don't really I mean, <laughs> okay. you never know. Somebody could fill in, uh, you know, a young person runs for office and wins. But I I think they're the. Cuomo dynasty may be done in less than 50 years. All right. There we go. Reason for optimism, <laughs> New Yorkers. Within within 50 years, John Brennan assures you. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. All right. Um, two noteworthy states released their December gaming revenue numbers since our last show. So that's our third and final story this week. The latest revenue reports from Pennsylvania and Indiana. In my home state of Pennsylvania, we saw a record sports betting handle of $342.6 million, up 8.2% over the previous month. And the online percentage has now equaled New Jersey levels, with 86.8% of the bets coming via online slash mobile. FanDuel remains king with $154.5 million in online bets, while DraftKings moved up to a still very distant second at $35.9 million. Powered by sports betting and online casino and poker, 
the entire Pennsylvania gaming industry saw record annual revenue in 2019, up 4.5% over 2018. Meanwhile, in Indiana, sports betting made the difference between total gaming revenue rising and falling in the state in 2019, as other forms of gambling were down $33 million over 2018, but sports wagering made up for that by adding $40 million in total revenue. The December sports betting handle was $161.8 million, so a little less than half of Pennsylvania's, with about 68% of it coming online. John, do you think we'll see a 90% online month in Pennsylvania before we see it in New Jersey? Uh, And is there anything else in these numbers that stands out to you? Well, you know, that DraftKings monopoly that just kicked off in New Hampshire, you know, that might sting Fandle a little bit, but I think these ass-kicking Pennsylvania numbers probably help some medicine go down for them. I think they're going to be okay. Um, You know, that Nevada-New Jersey tussle over the past six months or a year over who is the highest monthly sports betting handle, uh, its days are numbered as the lumbering behemoth that is your Pennsylvania continues to slowly arise from its slumber, and they're going to come, and they're going to come hard. Mm -hmm. Um, There's going to be a new sheriff in town before the end of the calendar year, I think for sure. Okay. as for online handle of Jersey versus Pennsylvania, I think it depends in a way on the weather uh, in the mm. next couple of months. You know, uh, Rutgers men's hoops is in the top 25 for the first time in decades, and Seton Hall's climbed, I think, into the top 10. So, you know, with no legal wagering on those teams in New Jersey, a warm spell in March could lead to caravans from New Brunswick and South Orange heading to the Pennsylvania border, putting Pennsylvania over the top at mobile bets. Are you, are you buying any of that, Eric? Mm, I guess I guess that can't hurt Pennsylvania's cause. I don't know that the, they'll be coming in droves enough to uh, to, to shift the balance of power. But um, I just think Pennsylvania is more built to be a mobile state than New Jersey because it's a bigger state area wise where you have more people spread out, located far from a casino. Uh, and because there's no casino town exactly in Pennsylvania. No no destination for a day at the sportsbook quite like what Atlantic City is. And as we've discussed, Atlantic City is nothing compared to Las Vegas for a gambling destination city. Uh, but still, it's bigger than anything going in Pennsylvania. So I actually wouldn't be surprised. The way that that Pennsylvania percentage it has been going up uh, pretty dramatically by a, a several percentage points a month. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next three or four months, uh, Pennsylvania hits 90% mobile, uh, especially you, you mentioned the weather. You know, we have a, a real snowy month or something that nobody wants to go to the casinos. Uh, they, they, yeah, they could they could get there real soon. New Jersey has just been creeping along so slowly with that percentage that I would guess we aren't going to see 90% in New Jersey during any month in, in 2020. But I hadn't really thought about what you said about just Pennsylvania passing both Nevada and New Jersey in yeah. sports betting handle before the end of the calendar year. And you you, you may well be right. They are uh, really gaining a lot of steam. Yeah, I, I should throw in, too, about the, the, the Indiana numbers. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the Hoosiers are very friendly people. Their slogan is Indiana nice, after all. So I think that maybe some of them consider it antisocial to, like, bet on the Colts or Indiana University hoops and then just sit home and watch it. They should really be out amongst themselves. So I don't see them getting to 90 percent anytime soon. <laughs> no, probably not. They're they're a lot lower there. As I said, about 68 percent. It's going to keep going up. But yeah, not mm-hmm. not not at the rates we're seeing on the East Coast. Um, but uh, speaking of Indiana, it's interesting that while FanDuel is winning huge in Pennsylvania and pretty big in New Jersey, uh, DraftKings does have the edge so far in Indiana, about 67 million in December in handle versus 36 million uh, for FanDuel uh, with Bet Rivers way behind it, about eight million dollars so it just shows again that first mover advantage matters in the early going DraftKings beat FanDuel by a couple of weeks in Indiana and it is making a difference for them so far 
You know, which one is Godzilla? Which one is King Kong? I'm not sure. <laughs> that's a that's that's a good debate to have uh, when we're when we're a little lighter on news. We'll do a whole deep dive on uh, Godzilla <laughs> yeah. and King Kong. And Rodan and the other ones. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I definitely uh, bet Rivers is is Rodan in this example. Okay. <laughs> it's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. If by chance you did not catch this past Sunday's episode of the docu-series Backstory on ESPN, exploring the cases of Shoeless Joe Jackson and Pete Rose, both banned from baseball following betting scandals, do yourself a favor and find an upcoming rebroadcast or watch it on demand. It's tremendous, in both my opinion and that of my 10-year-old son, who watched it with me. And joining us now on the podcast to discuss these baseball betting scandals and their context within the increasingly legalized world of sports gambling is the host and executive producer of Backstory, veteran investigative reporter, and two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, Don Van Natta. Don, welcome to Gamble On. Thank you, Eric. Great to be with you guys. So I thought about building up gradually to a question about your Pete Rose interview, but nah, I'm just going to dive right in and start with that. I was struck by how you hung in there and got him to go from combative a couple of minutes in to cordial by the end. What can you tell us about the interview with Rose that we didn't see in the episode? And I'll ask a similar question to the one Pete asked you. Do you feel his punishment fits his crime? Well, first of all, Eric, uh, it was unclear Pete Rose was gonna, even going to do the interview with us. He initially said no. And I went out to Vegas and saw him at the Mandalay Bay and persuaded him in person before our cameras were there to sit down with us. He just did not feel there was anything in it for him to do it. Uh, so then he agreed to do it. And then about a month later, in July of last year, we went and did the interview. And as anybody who sees Backstory, the episode, can tell he's quite combative in the beginning. I'm asking him a lot of tough questions about 1989. He did not want to go there um, and was surprised that I was doing it. I was surprised he was surprised because the name of the show is Backstory. And obviously we wanted to, you know, go back and go to a through line from a narrative from 89 all the way to today. Uh, and I really felt he was going to rip his microphone off. You know, when he said, you're like every other reporter, uh, one of his butt cheeks was starting to lift off the chair and he was getting ready to bolt about 10 minutes in to the interview. But I think it diffused it when I said to him, you know, he said, you keep quoting a book. And I said, well, it's your book. And I reminded him that I was quoting something from his most recent book, Play Hungry. And I really think that diffused things. And he said, he calmed down. And then I felt he made one of the more impassioned, persuasive cases on his own behalf, why he should be forgiven. What wasn't in the interview to answer your question about that is he talked a lot about baseball today, and he was very careful not to offend Commissioner Rob Manfred, who he still hopes will someday reinstate him uh, back into baseball and take him off the ineligible list. Uh, he talked a lot about the juiced baseballs and how that's a big scandal. Now, we were before the sign-stealing scandal, of course, which he's been very vocal about uh, in recent days. But the hypocrisy of baseball, the interest of the owners to cash in on gambling now, uh, he talked about that. And, and if you watch the episode, you see that's our whole fourth act. We deal with Major League Baseball's embrace of legalized gambling now since the Supreme Court decision in May of 2018. And so Pete has strong feelings about that, but he sort of reined himself in to not be too critical of Manfred to try to keep what he views as the door 
that's still slightly ajar with Manfred, although I think the door is uh, completely shut and will never open to him, at least as far as Commissioner Manfred is concerned. Right. And, and what about that that question that, that Pete was sort of posing to you? I guess he was juxtaposing what he did against uh, throwing a game, whereas he was betting on his own team, he now ad- admits. Um, do you feel that the punishment fits the crime or is this excessive at this point? There's no doubt that the punishment fit the crime in 1989. Rule 21, you can't mess with that. Uh, It's another huge betting scandal. Uh, There was certainly a parallel to what happened with the Black Sox scandal. It's very different as he made the point. I thought made the point very effectively that taking money to throw a World Series is different from betting on your own team to win. Um, But uh, I, I think after 30 years, 30 years is enough. And, and I think when he said, you know, I thought we live in a country where there are second chances, hmm. um, that, that that's, that's a, a pretty persuasive argument that he should be taken off the banned list. However, the tragic part of the P. Rose story, and I hope this came across during my interview with him, is that he still bets on baseball. Right. If he were to tell Commissioner Manfred, I am no longer ever going to bet on baseball. Are you okay with me betting on a football game or a basketball game as I live in Las Vegas and the sports book is just down, you know, down the hallway from where I sign autographs every day. But if he can't do that, and the fact that he didn't do that in that meeting with Commissioner Manfred back in 2015, that's the biggest stumbling block. That, that language that was in the settlement that he signed about reconfiguring your life, the way MLB sees it, the way Manfred sees it is you haven't reconfigured your life as long as you're still betting on baseball. He thinks there's a distinction because he bet illegally with bookmakers back in the late 80s when he was the manager of the Cincinnati Reds, a player manager. But uh, there, there's an important distinction still for baseball because gambling is still the third rail, and they can't have anybody who participates in the game still betting on baseball. So it's a true, truly a tragic story. But I feel, yes, he's done enough time if he can get over that hurdle about betting on baseball. Now, Don, I kind of consider myself a little bit of a baseball historian, and uh, I've been voting in the Hall of Merit Project on Baseball Think Factory for more than a dozen years now, so I'm going back to the 1870s, 1860s sometimes, so I kind of know some of the baseball, and you know, the movie Eight Men Out is very popular, very well acted, very well produced, directed, and all that, but obviously, you know, baseball historians know there are some uh, some major holes in the, uh, the script there, so uh, there are a couple things in that, in that movie that, you know, a lot of people have seen that you'd want them to know that... It's a well-done movie, but here's what the real the real story is. Yeah, there's a lot of myths uh, about the Black Sox scandal and the Society of American Baseball Research, and we visited their uh, annual convention in San Diego last June. They're, they've made unbelievable strides in sort of clarifying things. For instance, one of the big ones is that Charles Comiskey, the owner of the Chicago White Sox, was a cheapskate, and he didn't pay any of the players the wages that they should have been paid that's a myth. Actually, the White Sox was, had the second highest payroll in baseball that year. Uh, Comiskey was actually quite generous with them. If you watch the movie, it appears that the gamblers were the ones that actually were the driving force behind the fix, when in fact it was the players that actually sought out the gamblers. That's another uh, myth that's there. But, you know, for me, one of the biggest ones, and I love the movie, by the way, and I was thrilled to interview John Sales, the writer-director who played Ring Lardner in the movie, uh, for backstory. But for me, the biggest fault of the film, and I don't think this gets a lot of, of attention, is the lack of context. 
you watch that movie and you think that the fixing of the 1919 World Series was the only time that there was gambling, illegal gambling, uh, infecting baseball in the early 20th, early 20th century. As our show points out, it was rampant everywhere. In fact, the 1918 World Series between the Chicago Cubs and the Boston Red Sox, there were all sorts of rumors that there was a payoff there for that result. There were earlier World Series in the 20th century where there were all sorts of uh, suggestions of that. Eddie Seacott, the White Sox pitcher uh, in 1919, got the idea for taking money to throw the World Series from the Cubs in 1918, as we reported in Backstory. So it feels like a one-off when you watch Eight Men Out, and and there's hints of it here and there late uh, in the film. Remember when the sort of lawyers for uh, baseball get together and are pretty much pulling all the strings to make the scandal go away, to, to keep baseball's reputation, uh, you know, not, not besmirched. Um, there's, so there's hints of it, but it's not nearly enough for, for my liking uh, in the way it's portrayed. Yeah, and there's even sort of Hall of Famers at the time. A little bit of Ty Cobb, particularly Tris Speaker, was uh, was pretty seriously charged for a while, and then uh, uh, that sort of passed. But it wasn't that unusual for even a, a superstar player to be either accused or perhaps even doing something. So I agree with you on that context. Yeah, it's it, it's one it's the one thing that I really uh, wish there had been more about it. But but look, the film is fantastic. It might be my favorite sports movie. It's why I love the Black Sox scandal so much. And as we point out in backstory. It really portrays Shoeless Joe Jackson as an unwitting victim that got swept up in this scandal, uh, didn't want any part of it whatsoever. Uh, and, you know, America really sympathized with Shoeless Joe and took up his cause in a meaningful way with petitions and making the argument to Major League Baseball to the point where Commissioner Bart Giamatti was on the verge of possibly taking Shoeless Joe off the ban list. And then Pete Rose got busted, as we say in the episode. I mean, the timing of that is fascinating. And, you know, the cross-section of facts between Shoeless Joe and Pete Rose was a major reason why we decided to do this episode. I was fascinated by that, of how often Pete Rose got in the way of Shoeless Joe Jackson. And now in Pete Rose's mind, Shoeless Joe Jackson is in Pete Rose's way uh, of, of getting off uh, the band list. Yeah, I, before seeing the, the episode, I didn't realize that confluence of timing that uh that when the pete rose thing came along relative to shoeless joe jackson uh and even just something uh, a, a funny little detail like the fact that the black Sox were against the cincinnati reds it's a there was a lot of uh, symmetry and synergy i guess uh, between the two stories jumping ahead uh a hundred years to from the black Sox scandals to what's going on now to what extent if at all, would you say Major League Baseball has lost the moral high ground when it comes to Rose and the Black Sox now that the league is partnering with sports books and, and making money off sports gambling, both directly and indirectly? Does, does this change anything? Well, I think it does. And one of the big uh, reasons and launching pads for this particular episode wasn't just because there was such a confluence of timing and events with Shoeless Joe Jackson and Pete Rose. It was also because of 2018, because the Supreme Court opened the floodgates to legalize gambling across the country, and all these states are now coming online. We felt it just, it changed the dynamic. It changed the way we should consider Shoeless Joe and Pete Rose in light of baseball really going all in and seeing legalized gambling as a way to turbocharge fans' interest, uh, particularly young fans. Um, it's partnerships with MGM Grand, with DraftKings, 
Uh, even Commissioner Manfred, who was so concerned about the slow pace of play, and suddenly after the Supreme Court made his decision, he said, well, maybe the slow pace of play isn't such a big problem because, of course, it opens up more opportunities for in-game wagering. So all of those things uh, really, I think, should change the way we view baseball seeing gambling as the third rail, as really the the original sin. Um, And you could see why they do. You know, there were players for the White Sox that took bribes to throw a World Series. That's Mm -hmm. something very serious and really undercut the confidence in the game. Uh, You can make the argument, though, that Pete Rose betting on his own team, granted, illegally with illegal bookmakers, is not seen with the same taboo today as it was seen then. And, you know, Faye Vincent, uh, the commissioner who was the deputy commissioner when the uh, punishment was accepted by Pete Rose for uh, to be banned from baseball, said in our episode, and I thought very tellingly, that now that the culture has changed in America when it comes to gambling, he thinks it's inevitable that Pete Rose will get into the Hall of Fame. And, you know, when those punishments came down, guys, last week, uh, of the general manager and the manager of the Astros and that $5 million fine, Pete Rose was trending on Twitter for hours worldwide because baseball fans were looking at the scales of justice and saying, wait a minute, no players here are getting punished, uh, just the manager and the general manager, and yet Pete Rose is now in year 31 of his ban from baseball and still on the outside looking in, is that fair? And I think that those conversations are going to continue. And judging from just anecdotally from the fans that I've heard from since Backstory has debuted this weekend, uh, I think a lot of people are in Pete Rose's corner. They feel enough is enough, 30 years is enough, and they put it up against baseball profiting from gambling, embracing gambling, and looking at whether there's some hypocrisy here on the part of baseball to still hold up Pete Rose as a villain. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like him getting into the Hall of Fame is indeed inevitable. It's The question is, will it happen while he's still alive? And I th- thought it was interesting during his interview with you where he was kind of like, yeah, if it happens after I'm gone, it doesn't really help me much. Right. No, that's right. And there's, and by the way, what's really interesting, Eric, is there are a lot of uh, old timers in baseball, baseball insiders that do not want Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame even after he dies. Mm. And quietly this past weekend, the Hall of Fame put out a statement to me. I did a story for ESPN.com saying that after you die, if you're still on the ineligible list, you're not eligible for the Hall of Fame. Now, rules can change. You know, uh, they they put a Pete Rose rule in in 1991 after Rose was banned from baseball. If there's enough of a hue and cry of fans, maybe they will change that. But there there are some people really dug in that feel Pete Rose should never be in the Hall of Fame while he's alive and even after he passes away. Yeah, now, Don, you did a a kind of a famous piece, too, in 2013 on the famous uh, Billie Jean King, Bobby Riggs uh, battle of sexes in the 1970s. And kind of raised some questions about uh, whether that match was on the up and up. Uh, interesting to me as a journalist, because uh, I covered the US Open for many years, and I knew Billie Jean King very well. I played doubles against her once in tennis, and she's about as beloved a figure as there are in the entire sport. And the idea that her exciting victory might have been a little bit uh, tainted in some way was pretty uh, courageous. But I'm just curious if gambling in general is a topic that kind of intrigues you in particular as a journalist, and then also whether you're uh, any good at gambling yourself in, on your spare time. Well, I'm, I'm not good at gambling <laughs> myself, and I, I, I do dabble with it, but I'm not very good. Uh, occasionally, when I'm in the sports book uh, on a weekend, I'll have, a, I'll have a winning day, and I pinch myself. Uh, that's some really stupid luck. But, but to your question, John, I, I, I mean, I, first of all, that story was one of the 
toughest stories I had to do. And you're right. Uh, Billie Jean King is a beloved figure, but it came through a tip um, from somebody who had suggested to me that he heard prior to the Battle of the Sexes matches, some very notorious gamblers in this country talking about Bobby Riggs bringing them this idea that he was going to throw a match with Margaret Court, who was then the number one ranked player in the world, and Bobby Riggs uh, did beat Margaret Court, not throw it against Margaret Court, play Margaret Court, beat her, but then throw the match against Billie Jean King because he was in deep debt to illegal bookmakers. And, you know, a lot of, it's a circumstantial case that I built in that story, John. I I know you read it. Um, I don't know whether I proved it, but I certainly raised some, I think some pretty serious questions about whether everything was on the up and up there. Bobby Riggs was a notorious compulsive gambler. He was deep in debt at the time. Um, And there was, and you know, if you watch the match, there are some times where Bobby Riggs looks completely different against Billie Jean King than he did against Margaret Court when he beat her 6-2-6-1. I mean, he's, he's double faulting left and right. Uh, He has a great service game. It disappeared that day. He can't even reach the net with some of his balls. And, you know, we did a ESPN piece as well that I think made a very compelling, uh, showing with the video clips of what happened there. But as far as gambling goes, I'm fascinated by it. It's so embedded in the culture now with legalized gambling. I did a piece in 2016 about DraftKings and FanDuel um, and all the issues they had, remember, in the fall of 2015 with the scandal, with the insider scandal that they had to overcome when it came to fantasy uh, football. Uh, and of course now, you know, everything has changed and they're in the sports, the sports book uh, business and they're doing quite well. But I did an in-depth story about FanDuel and DraftKings when they were really struggling and how they were, uh, trying to make it, um, uh, while competing against each other back in 2016. So I, I love uh, gambling as a subject. Uh, it's one that, uh, if there's more opportunities with backstory down the road with our future episodes, I'll certainly seize it, uh, uh, as, as a chance to do because it, it, it's so important to sports, as Faye Vincent said, and, uh, and, and, and there's many opportunities to do really interesting work uh, in that arena. Yeah, gamblers are catnip to journalists, i got to be honest. They're fascinating <laughs> people. They're hard to understand, and you don't know what they're thinking. But I tell people in New Jersey here, you can go over the Meadowlands racetrack on a Saturday afternoon and just people watch. It's free, you know, free parking, free admission. Just sit there and watch. What these, You're never going to do it. It's not, your, it's not in your blood. You know, it's not in my blood either. But um, they are interesting characters, that's for sure. They really are interesting characters. And that was one of the most fun things about doing that. Uh, the piece is called, for any of your viewers and listeners that, that want to check it out, it's called The Matchmaker on ESPN.com. And one of the most fascinating things about that, John, was I talked to all these old degenerate gamblers in Vegas who were Bobby's buddies, you know, guys he'd play cards with, guys that he used to bet on sports with. Uh, and they're all characters, every one of them. They're great storytellers. So, yeah, it's, it's a very rich vein of material for sure when you're writing about gambling, no doubt. Well, great stuff. It's been great talking to you, Donna. And before we let you go, um, two episodes of Backstory have aired so far, Band for Life and Serena versus the Umpire. Can you tell us anything about any upcoming episodes? Uh, what, what's next and, uh, and when it'll debut? Yes, uh, we have two more episodes uh, in the pipeline. The next episode is going to debut uh, this summer. Uh, it's about the decision. LeBron's wow. uh, I'm Taking My Talents to South Beach, that, uh, that TV show that, of course, was on ESPN. Uh, we're going to tell the backstory of that and everything that flowed from that in the decade since. The 10th anniversary is this summer. And obviously, so much about player empowerment and freedom with what happens with free agency in the NBA. Uh, you can tell that story through what happened 10 years ago with that show. And then after that, we're doing Manti Teo. 
the Notre Dame uh, Heisman runner-up uh, who had the fake dead girlfriend and was catfished. Uh, that story is one we're doing uh, for Backstory as well, and that will hopefully air early fall of this year. Those are great subjects. I look forward to those. Uh, but uh, Thank thanks so much for, uh, for joining us on the podcast, Don. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. We'll do things a little out of order this week since we have a week off before we have to make our final NFL picks of the season. Uh, so we'll, we'll start with the update on our playoff picks and then get to our bankroll. John was 6-2 and two and I was 5-3 and three through eight games, and we were both wrong about the Packers covering 7.5 points, but we disagreed on Chiefs-Titans. John picked Tennessee, I picked Kansas City, so I got that one, meaning we're tied, both 6-4 and four heading into the Super Bowl. So we're both assured winning records. But if we get the Super Bowl wrong, six and five, we're barely beating the VIG. So our Super Bowl picks are important, and we will make those next week. Uh, now we update our betting bankroll. And John scored our biggest win in almost a year since the Edelman <laughs> Super Bowl MVP bet with a 10 to 1 hit on the DraftKings promo for Derrick Henry to score the first touchdown in the Chiefs-Titans game. So that was a healthy profit, $500. We lost $100 on our Jason Kokrak golf bet, though. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it didn't, didn't, didn't come close, did he, John? No, it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we lost $110 on Mahomes for most passing yards, thanks to the Chiefs keeping the ball on the ground in the fourth quarter and Aaron Rodgers airing it out for Green Bay. Uh, but we won $100 back with the Kawhi Leonard overbet in last Thursday's game. Add it all up, and we won $390, which almost puts us back in the black. We're below our starting stack by just $100. We also have $885 on hold in futures bets, which leaves us with $9,015 available to bet this week. And I'm up first. And I'm going to try for more long-shot Super Bowl MVP magic. Uh, last year, of course, I put $20 on Julian Edelman at a ridiculous 50-1 to 1, uh, when there was clearly a path to him winning the award that was a higher percentage chance than those odds indicated. This year... Not as big of a long shot, but 49ers tight end George Kittle is available at too high a price. He's about 1600 or 1700 at several books, which I think is a little high, but he's all the way up at plus 2200 at points bet. Uh, look, if the Chiefs win the game, there's about a 90 to 95% chance Mahomes is the MVP. If the Niners win, it's wide open. Garoppolo is not going to be asked to carry the load. The running backs play a big role, but that role gets spread among the three of them if they're all healthy. The defense certainly plays a role, and Kittle is no doubt the best pass catcher on the team. If the Niners win and Kittle has 100 yards receiving and a touchdown or two, and Garoppolo's numbers aren't that great, that's your formula right there. It's basically the Edelman formula. And because Kittle had a very quiet game last week, He's underpriced. I, I really think that's a big factor that he caught, I think, one ball for 19 mm. yards, something like that last week. If he had had his usual seven catches for 90 yards against the Packers, I think he'd be about plus 1,000 or plus 1,200 for Super Bowl MVP. But one quiet game and the books forget how dominant he can be. So I'll gladly risk $30 to win 660 on Kittle. 
All right. Well, first, I have to say I'm glad I insisted to our subscribers last week that I was not good enough to be in that 13-4 and one streak and 53-35-5 this season. is ridiculous. Um, I don't mind the Titans miss at all, frankly, but the Packers were the prototypical team I pounded against all year. Literally the worst 13-win team in NFL history by any measure. Uh, that shiny object, seven and a half points, just lured this sucker right in, though. And uh, I, at least I, I felt a sense of dread coming into Sunday for that game, so that's a good sign. Okay. Um, but I'm thinking of writing a song about that whole week and disaster and the working title is the man who fell to earth <laughs> and now not, not um, bad i'll just say about the packers that uh they did have a shot at that backdoor cover it looked like yeah, it was going to be possible at one point in the middle of the fourth quarter but well, no, so did the titans actually yeah right true <laughs> now uh, i gotta say kittles yeah he's only six plus 1600 on DraftKings, so nice value and once again you've uh, you've laid out a great uh, argument for him um yeah tune in next week as i figure out what to do regarding my chiefs bet from last month to win the super bowl mm. 11 of 11-1 odds, right? Yep. But for now, let's look at the futures for me, too. How about Tyreek Hill at plus 2,000 for me, 30 to win 600? Uh, I agree with you mainly on Mahomes, but um, Hill is the guy. He could do something big on special teams. He might even do that. And he's a dominant receiver. He might catch a couple of screen passes that he turns into 80-yard touchdowns, and that would give him at least a puncher's chance at the MVP. That's that's a good call. He he is the kind of guy who can either he can do absolutely nothing. He could finish the game with like one catch for 12 yards. You you wouldn't be shocked to see that or he could absolutely go like two touchdowns, a big punt return, 150 yards receiving and even if Mahomes has a good game, they give it to Hill. I think uh yeah, as a long shot guy that's not bad. Um for my second bet this week, uh, it'll actually be my second and third bets as I'm going to make a pair of boxing upset bets. This Saturday night on Showtime, the opening bout of a triple header sees a meeting of undefeated prospects, Stephen Fulton and Arnold Hagai. I would have guessed Fulton would be about a two to one or three to one favorite, but uh, no, he's like 15 to one. And the take back on Hagai is plus 750. And Hagai is much more of a live dog than that. So let's bet $50 to win 375. And then the following weekend, uh, while we're in Nashville for the Super Bowl, an excellent junior welterweight fight between Jose Ramirez and Victor Postol. I would have guessed, uh, again, like that other fight, that Postol would be about plus 200 or plus 250, but he's plus 430, uh, and I can absolutely see him winning this fight. He's undervalued because he's older and he hasn't had wins as high profile as Ramirez is lately, but this is a very competitive matchup, so let's risk another $50 to win 215 and uh, and that fight will be on ESPN on Saturday night February 1st uh, so maybe I can get you to sweat it along with me at a bar in Nashville <laughs> Yeah, it's probably not going to happen. But um, uh, yeah, so last week I already veered away from my new 2020 theory on golf, uh, which is that um, I want to look to the young Turks and seek real value there every week. Uh, said I was sucked in by a plus 200 for a top 20 on a non-entity like Kokrak, which is just pitiful. So uh, I will say the PGA Tour, you know, with the NFL dark weekend, uh, continues to ramp up with a visit to Torrey Pines in La Jolla, California this week um, to a record 7,765 yard land on the South course, which is kind of cool where three of the four rounds will be played. The big lure is Tiger Woods chasing a record 83rd victory. And needless to say, you'll find no value there, but it's got Rory McIlroy, John Rahm, defending champ, Justin Rose, uh, some real heavy hitters. So uh, might be worth a, a, 
checking out. Um, so my Turk of the Week is Colin Murakawa at 100 on a plus 300 line. Um, L.A. native, Cal Berkeley grad, age 22, already a tour winner. Now, he's playing with Tiger and with Rom for the first two rounds. And 20 years ago, you'd figure a kid would be doomed to be going against his hero and all that kind of stuff. But um, these kids these days, they love to challenge authority, as I've said. And I won't be surprised if he knocks both of them off for those 36 holes and then uh, coasts his way into a top 20. Hmm, okay, so plus 300 for the top 20 there. Yes. All right. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Don Van Natta. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling. And subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. And with that, John, please take us out. Well, Eric, this is a fine weekend for our avid football-only betters to, you know, reacquaint themselves with family and friends. Um, I would suggest uh, act as if skipping the Pro Bowl on Sunday is a real sacrifice for you and mm. build some goodwill that way, and you're not going to miss the game anyway. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, you won't miss it. You won't not. You won't mind not watching it. Not, right, right. won't miss it. Yeah, <laughs> Just miss it. It's to, to, be, to be simple, miss it. Um, and after all, the start of the inaugural XFL season is only a couple of weeks away, so uh, get your uh, friendly time in now. And with that, until next time... Gamble on.